What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Central Virginia Sport Performance Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jay DeMeo, and today we've got a really exciting talk. I'm going to get to sit down and talk with PJ Vazell about not just training athletes, not just developing sprinters and throwers, which he's been doing over in France for quite a while at a really, really high world-class level but also running into the weeds here a bit of research and understanding history and understanding where these ideas come from and really how much of this stuff is just kind of rinse and repeat. PJ, thanks so much for spending the time with us today, man. Thank you, Jeff, for having me. Yeah. Part of the show. Yeah. I'm really excited because I think that, you know, a coach of your experience and a coach of your caliber who has such a growth mindset in a sense of not just understanding where things are going, but understanding where they came from is really vital, especially in today's day and age where everybody's got their iPhone connected directly to their eyeballs. And they're always looking at whatever the new sexy thing is. But before we run down those rabbit holes here too far, you know, let's let everybody know, you know, who is PJ and and what are you getting into over in France? So I'm track and field coach in Metz. Um, I'm coaching throwers now, but I, I started coaching sprinters in 2004. Uh, I did my first world champs in 2005, and I will do my, I, I lost the count, but I, uh, the track and field world champs, athletics world champs will be held uh, next month. So, um, and now I'm coaching throwers. So that's uh, my job. Uh, I'm working with the French Federation of Athletics. And besides coaching, I'm working on um, scientific uh, research, which are related to history of sports science. So all sciences, the evolution of all sciences, it can be... uh, biomechanics, it can be um, physiology, it can be psychology, why not? Anything that uh, has been um, a resource to coaches, science applied to to coaching, uh, I'm interested in, in that history. Well, I guess the first question that I would have, PJ, is what drove you to, you know, kind of that direction? Because usually, right, people say that it's a combination of math and science or where people like to focus their education or English and history. Or I guess it would just be language arts and history in this case. But it's, you know, looking back and wanting to study the history of the sports science and the history of the research. is a unique perspective and challenge. I think it comes from my art studies because I didn't do sports studies or science studies. I did uh, fine art studies. And one thing that the professors were adamant to was, okay, if you are using blue color, you need to know exactly what is blue, where it come from, which artists have used I've used blue, the significations of blue, 
um, how it is made. Um, and um, you really had to, to make your research and to be able to answer questions about what you do. And when I started coaching, it was the same uh, vibe. I, um, I wanted to understand why am I doing squats or doing a periodization or giving a rest day? How has it been implemented by other coaches before? And I really love history anyway. So I wanted to to know more and more and more and it's uh, it's an impossible quest to embrace all the the literature and the interviews that have been done and meet people and ask them questions but that's the impossible quest i've started to do two decades ago and um, going as far as the ancient greece with the first uh, methodology and science because it was already called a science like sport competitive sport was a big thing in a, in, in Greece uh, the wars were supposed to stop during the Olympic year <laughs> so that's a big thing and um, uh, I think it it has drive in some way my coaching and professional practice Although um, I soon realized that improvisation is um, the most important skill for a coach. But I think for, um, if you ask actors or in, in the art uh, community and industry what improvisation is, they will, they will tell you that uh, you need to know your thing before you are able to improvise. Uh, improvisation is not starting from scratch. It's based on all your knowledge, but suddenly you forget everything and you are able to invent some something. So the invention doesn't mean that it has never been done, but suddenly you find the resources and the and you find the answer that is in in adequation with what you need at the time and place you are and in many occasions <laughs> almost every day you need to improvise at training improvisation is the most important skill for a coach i can dig that because i think that especially in today's society and all the people that are involved in college athletics are probably nodding like understanding that you've kind of got to fly by the seat of your pants and a little bit with all of the schedule changes and this that and the third um is is vital but i also think that what you brought up is really really important and that is like you've got to know what you're doing you've got to know the direction you're going you've got to have plans set out so that these improvisations, these plans B, C, D, whatever it may be, are as close to plan A and driving the direction towards the main objective as best as possible. Yes. And an, another a synonym of uh, improvisation is plan B or C, but you really need to set it up in, in the second 
<laughs> or else it's too late or you will lose the confidence of uh, the athletes i remember some some uh, some anecdotes uh, i was preparing olympics with uh, an athlete and we had the schedule and uh, you know that programmation with a core circuit and um, a great core circuit absolutely fabulous but <laughs> two weeks out of the 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 world champs he was tired of it he could he told me coach i'm, I'm retired i'm doing this shit every day <laughs> or every workout uh, let's find something else so i had to find a mirror of it of what we were doing but uh different <laughs> or suddenly you go to a practice and the field is closed or the the athlete has an injury but still need to do something to train around the injury you know and of course it's not planned but um, you, you you need to to find something and uh, I call it improvisation but may, may, maybe there are uh, people can relate to other acronyms or words I don't know no I think that's the perfect the perfect term for uh, for it right is you know you've got to be able to think on your feet and you know be able to adapt and evolve and continue to move forward because like you said you could lose the athletes if you're not yes. prepared you know but kind of coming back then full circle you know to understand the direction you're going the most efficient ways possible the ways that could be alternative methods means whatever it may be to accomplish your goal You've got to be well-versed and well-understanding in the general science and what has been done and where people have been successful. So coming back to this idea of looking at history, when you look at the history of sports science and coaching and athletics, I think the one thing that would probably be the most important to get out of the way first is what are the things that you've noticed that have stood the test of time? Because I guess we would probably be able to infer that if it stood the test of time it's something that leads to success yes um i think the basics that were uh already there but not formalized um and that were later theorized by uh, soviet authors um we call them the principles of training. And when I started coaching and even before coaching, studying sports science, I find it very boring. You know, those big books, Madveyev, uh, <laughs> um, those, those big books uh, with the things that we believe to know, but we are mostly interested by exotic practices and things that stood out. Uh, when I started making research, I was always interested in the in the outliers because it, of course, it, it it draws attention, it attracts attention. But after years, um, I realized that uh, the main things are those principles and if those outliers exist actually they are predicted by those principles so they may not be outliers actually 
And those big, what are those big principles where it's periodization, it's uh, variability of training, it's, um, I'm not sure about the word, uh, continuity of training, the progressivity, the individualization. Those are big terms that we all know what they cover. But the main interesting thing to me is that they clash each other. There are contradictions between them um, with variability and specificity, for example. How do you manage that? Specificity says that uh, the more specific the training, the more efficient it is. But then <laughs> you have another principle that tells you that it needs to be progressive and also that it needs to to be um, to be variable. If you keep doing the same specific thing all uh, every every time, it doesn't it, it no longer works. <laughs> so that's a big contradiction, right? And uh, it's uh, extremely interesting to me. I think that the balance in that contradiction, though, is. I guess I would say is what people like to call buy-in in a sense, but really it's more of the coach understanding the individual athlete, right? Like there are some men or women that you work with that if it isn't borderline like copycat specific, they're, they're going to want nothing to do with it, especially in the world like basketball that I get to work with. Like these guys, they just want to hoop, right? Like they, they want to work on their specific tasks, but the variability with some is what gets them in the room because they don't get bored. They have fun with it. They can enjoy that aspect of it at least. So I wonder almost in your opinion, do you feel that that's more physiological or psychological when it comes to that I don't know what what would we call it like the balance of like them being contradictory and them being symbiotic yeah um well russian authors were using dialectic uh which is a very dynam dynamic concept um it's not one or the other it's the tension and the contradiction that between both that makes you move forward um, for example, uh, if you take, uh, you need volume in, in your training and intensity, you start with volume and then you go, you move your, your training. Let me be specific for squats, for example, you need a little bit volume and then you move to intensity, but this, this intent, it, intent, new intensity will serve as a base for a new volume etc that's a that's just an example of how the dialectic works in in russians uh, sports scientists and philosophers works um for example uh let's say the movement the nature of movement uh muscular uh, it's made with muscular action but uh also with the relaxation of uh, muscles 
So that's why you we can hear a lot of power athletes saying that uh, their most efficient performances were achieved with the, the highest relaxation. And you feel that's a contradiction because in power, you usually think about muscular contraction, right? And they tell you in their experience that uh, it's actually the relaxation. But in physiology, it makes sense because uh, the movement can only be created by the contradiction, the, the sequence of contraction and relaxation. And um, if we take, uh, for example, the electric measurements of uh, muscles, the best athletes, the most skilled athletes and most performance athletes um, are the ones who have the less noise, the less signal in muscle contraction. If contraction is a signal, a noise, and the, the relaxation is a silence, they have more silence than noise. So their um, individual experience, their, their um, subjective experience is backed up by science. So that's very interesting. And it goes beyond uh, what we initially think about power sports. Yeah, and I think it really contradicts a lot of the work we do in the weight room, right? Like people love to talk about Valsalva, hold, brace, be tight, lock yeah, in, yeah. all of these things. But there's no skill in sport that moves as quickly and as fluidly and as reactively. Is that the word I want? I don't know. If you're tense as it is, if you're just relaxed and allowing it to happen, so to say. Yeah. And training in the weight room improves both contractions and relaxations of muscles up to a point where muscles are too tight because of too much volume, because of too much, not enough variability because of this or that. And that's where you get too strong, right? There's a, a, a question that... Uh, that is always there. How strong is too strong for for an event for sprinters, throwers, even weightlifters? Because uh, even in weightlifting, you you've got uh, sequences where you need to relax and uh, where you have change of directions and change of muscular contractions and eccentric, concentric, eccentric even ISO and uh, all these call for different physiology in the human body, even in pure speed, power. Well, uh, let me even... ask you this then. I'm, I'm loving the direction you're going with here because I think that this is like the age old question, right? How strong is too strong? How strong is strong enough? So I guess, are you in a sense hinting that it could be instead of it being too strong is that one of the negative ramifications of weightlifting let's just call it the yin to the strength yang right yes 
is that it increases tension, yeah. which then decreases the ability to stay relaxed and move fluidly, fastly, and reactively. Yes. That's dope. I dig it. It's been investigated by uh, Soviet uh, researchers when they managed to record the mus muscular activity with the EMJ. Ratov, uh, in the late 50s, or early, most of the studies or techniques we, we use now date from the late 50s in Soviet Union. Why? Because they hired the best scientists and they put them at work <laughs> but a lot of them with uh, unlimited fundings right they there were three th big things that was uh, space army and sport getting medals on the olympic games so they were new in in the 50s the soviet union was new in the 50s and they wanted to be the best in the world for Rome Olympics. So before Rome 60 Olympic, they started to use a lot of uh, science tools, scientific tools, um, and applying the concepts of uh, physics into sports. So one of them was uh, the electric recording of muscle activity and uh, they found that uh, the best athletes are the ones who are able to relax the most and uh, uh, I think it's very interesting because um, it has implications in physiology as well and later I think it was confirmed by physiology that uh, um, if you take weightlifting, for example, not only the the fast fibers are important, but the endurance fibers are also very important because they, they are used to yield in the eccentric phase that can be that can last a, a few seconds in that movement. So it's as important as the explosive uh, muscles. It's been tested. Uh, I participated to the to the Altis Foundation courses, and we put that uh, those studies in there. In the I can't remember which module. <laughs> I think it was uh, muscle fiber in the physiology mod module. Uh, I put some old articles in there that, uh, of course, the the methodology would be not up to the point today, but it was done with the the, the tools that that uh, were available in the seventies, and uh, I think it's still very relevant. Yeah, it's really crazy how just some of the things that work stand the test of time and are true. And although in this situation, I think especially when we talk about looking at relaxation, I think that this has led people down some pretty unique rabbit holes that I don't know whether or not they actually can display what they're saying is happening. Um, 
But I also think, too, it, it connects things that have been around for so long and, and why they work so well in tandem with, you know, other aspects of training, like how doing extensive jumps and just like relaxed and um, rhythmic running exercises with strength training or intensive jumps where you're putting out max effort that you may not be quite as relaxed in and kind of working at both ends of those spectrums tends to have a pretty solid training effect with most people when it comes to getting faster and more explosive. And I think it's very difficult to coach and I've been debating with colleagues about this. How do you coach relaxation? <laughs> because most of the athletes would take it as being sluggish. And uh, that's really the opposite of sluggish. And uh, it's difficult because, um, for example, if you take the fastest woman ever, Flo Jo, Florence Griffith Joyner, she was interviewed after each of her races in Seoul Olympics, where she set the Olympic record at 100 meters and the world record twice at 200 meters. And she was uh, still uh, catching her breath after the race and she was ask uh, each, after each race how what was her, her internal cue what was she was trying to do in the race and she each time she said relax 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 I, I, I try to stay relaxed lift the knees relax pump, pumping the arms stay relaxed and it's a 100 meters <laughs> and if you teach a beginner relax relax you won't you will get nothing out of them. <laughs> so that's another paradox, right? But um, that's a big challenge to, to coach athletes and have uh, year after year and making them stronger, more explosive um, and faster without losing this elasticity of muscles and, and which requires the muscles to contract fast and also to switch to fast relaxation. And that second part is the most important in the power sports. That was proven in studies in the six, 60s and 70s and even 80s with bobsledders. But it kind of vanished and it's no longer really tested now which is uh, unfortunate because um, most of the tests are, let's say, on the visible side of the moon. <laughs> it's a contraction. We, we test contraction. We test force-velocity relationship or force-endurance relationship, but we don't test the relaxation. And that's the dark side of the moon. That's the hidden part of the work. And in sprinting, that's most of the work. Uh, remember that the fastest sprinters, Yushan Bolt or Flo Joe, are spending more time on the air than on the ground, pushing on the track. So that's already a hint. And this biomechanical fact, that physical fact, 
is in agreement, fortunately, with what Bolt or Flojo are saying regarding the effortless sensation they have. But to reach this uh, relaxation requires uh, a lot of work, right? A lot of training, uh, a lot of experience, because being able to do it with uh, 50,000 of people at the right time, at the right moment, with seven other fast people is extremely hard. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, you know, and I guess just two things with that. One, it's really hard to sell my get your muscles to relax faster ebook. <laughs> right like it's not sexy like the fix your technique in four drills or improve you know the force you put in the ground each stride with these six magic exercises that's clickbaity and people love it but to sit there and say to turn off your muscles faster like i don't know if that's really is i mean it, i don't know that kind of sounds cool but i mean i i don't think that that hits you know, the, the sniff button, right. For people to want to click it in today's society, which is unfortunate because we know that the ability to hold and keep that relaxed kind of flowy state is what's going to allow them to be successful. Yes. But I also wonder, because when you talk about Flojo and you talk about, um, you know, Bolt, you know, you could throw like Michael Johnson in there, like some of the fastest people ever to step foot on the planet you've got three people who ran completely differently with three completely different body makeups i almost wonder if that is just not to diminish anything that we can do because i think that you can improve just about everything that with the human body because it's so designed to adapt but i wonder if they just are neurologically special where they're able to just they're wired at a much greater ability to flip that switch on and off at a faster pace. And that's just why people ran and looked at the back of their spikes. That's uh, a very difficult uh, question because uh, a lot of people try to, to, to find, uh, to detect, detection was a big thing in Europe. Um, detection of talent but how do you detect fast athletes well you pick the the fast kids on the on, on in the school it's not rocket science right but how do you know they will be fast in 10 years because uh, that's fine to be fast at 11 or 12 but the the average average age of uh, olympic medalists is 25 <laughs> And we see now that um, some people are still successful and beating their PB at 35. Like Shillian Fraser-Price won the world title last year. She's in her mid-30s. So how do you get there? Uh, and what makes them so special, as you said? Uh, and it's even more difficult when you look at when, well, if you forget the detection thing and you look at who is successful, they come in 
so many sizes and uh, personalities and uh, you've got uh, of course Yushan Bolt who was tall one meter 96 I think it's six four I don't know six five I, I'm not very good with the feet and inches he's very tall but in in the same island you had um, Michael Frater who was uh, almost two heads <laughs> shorter than him is 170 and he, he was a world record holder with Bolt in the 4 by one relay and individual uh, medalist also a world champ. So, and you've got, of course, Chilean Fraser Price with the shortest of the greatest sprinters. And so size doesn't really matter. Now, of course, they all have larger lean body mass than uh, general population but that doesn't make them more special than distance runners or specialists in other sports um, maybe fiber type typology but even with the limited um, knowledge and documentation we have we see that uh, some of the greatest athletes greatest sprinters that ever lived have been tested and they come with a 50% difference in the muscle typology, fast muscle, endurance muscle uh, ratio. I call it endurance ratio because uh, uh, endurance, uh, endurance fibers, because slow fibers, I'm not sure it applies to marathoners who run two minutes <laughs> for 42 kilometers, uh, two hours for 42 kilometers. They are not slow, <laughs> but they are. They have uh, andron fibers. Um, so it's a combination of many things, and also the that uh, mental preparation they have uh, that allows them to be very explosive yet relaxed in a minimum of time under pressure. All these is it genetic? Is it work? both i can say but um, we don't have the formula to create the perfect sprinter because the perfect the, the fastest printer male or female have changed in in shape if i can say over the decades and now if you if you look at the whole time list you, you can find very different profiles so that's what makes also our job as coaches very exciting because uh, it would be boring if there would be only one type of athlete that would be successful and maybe we, <laughs> there would be one formula to apply to all of them and coaches would be uh, unnecessary <laughs> no man I dig it and I think that some of that evolution of the anthropometrics and builds the athletes come back to the research that you're doing. And, you know, as research has evolved, what is the history of it? How is it continuing to grow? What is being rinsed and repeated and done again? And let's identify the things that work and the things that continue to work. You know, uh, PJ, I'm, I'm really excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for spending the time with us, man. This has been a great 40 minutes, but before we get you out of here, bud, where can people see what you're doing, keep in touch with you, follow you on the socials, all that stuff. 
So I, I really, um, if you see me at a track in in the world stage, uh, uh, I'm I'm always happy to to have a a drink <laughs> or a chat. But um, if you if you are not there, uh, you can reach me on social media on Twitter, on Instagram, or any anywhere you can find me. Uh, I always try to reply and engage because uh, when I started co coaching, um, I had a lot of questions and I was very shy and I still managed to send emails <laughs> to um, confident coaches to, and many, to my surprise, uh, replied. And I was so excited and so grateful and so proud to have a reply for, for, for those coaches. And two decades later, if I can help a little bit or have um, an exchange with uh, with uh, new coaches, I will be very, very happy to, to have this, uh, uh, to turn that back to them. Awesome. Well, PJ, we'll make sure that we've got those ads in the show notes. My friend, truly grateful for your time, brother. This is awesome. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jason. And as always, thank you for everything y'all do for us here at Central Virginia Sport Performance. We'll be back next week with another awesome guest. We will see you then.